Hi, I'm Marshall Ramsey. For years, I've drawn the most interesting people in Mississippi. Now, I get to interview them, too. Welcome to Conversations Podcast, where I sit down with the famous and folks who should be famous, and we just talk. Most of us lead fairly routine lives going to work, raising children, maintaining homes, etc. But every now and then, you run across someone whose life reads like a novel. Such is the case of today's guest, whose life has been so full of adventure that he did just that. He wrote a book. Today, we welcome George T. Mulvaney, author of Cups Up, How I Organized a Clavern, Plotted a Coup, Survived Prison, Graduated College, Fought Polluters, and Started a Business. George, that has got to be the best title of any book. Sorry, I didn't mean to chuckle too much on that. Great title. And did you write the title? I did Cups Up. Cups and up. the publisher, University Press, uh, kind of built it uh, on up there, added the subtitle. Yeah, so let's go ahead and get started with what does Cups Up mean? Okay, Cups Up dates back, it goes back to uh, July of 1981. Uh, I had, uh, it was my first day in in prison. I had been uh, arrested near Slidell for conspiracy to invade a foreign country with intent to overthrow the government. Okay, that right there, most people usually don't have on their resume. Yeah, it's not, yeah. A, it's not a real good resume builder. I typically right. don't put that on my professional resume. Right. Uh, literary, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good resume builder from a, from a literary standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. So the cup's up, like you said, in prison. Yeah, I'm uh, in, in, you know, I end up in federal prison several months after my arrest and my first day in there, I'm there, wake up that morning, it's early, it's just brutally hot, I'm in solitary confinement in Tallahassee, Florida, July, and um, I'm sitting on the, I got up, I sit on the edge of my bunk, and it just, all the months before, the, it hit me, the, 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 the trials, the, the court proceedings, and it, you know, what am I doing here? It's like everything, it was a surreal moment. You've got to be living a, a pretty sorry life, doing some bad things, some wrong things to end up here. And I'm having that conversation with myself, and I'm hearing cups up, cups up, from way down the, 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 the prison uh, range. And, uh, the, you know, I'm hearing it, and it keeps getting closer and closer. And I'm still sitting there thinking, how'd I end up here? You know, <laughs> I need to, I need, if I don't want to spend the rest of my life in prison, I've got to make some changes. And finally, a prison orderly appears out in front of my cell. I can only see straight out in front of me through the bars. And he looks in at me for a second or two, and he says, you want any effing coffee or not? Just real uh, hollers at me. I was 20 years old. He was probably in his 40s, uh, looked like a pretty hardened convict. And uh, then I said, oh, okay, I figured out. They'd given me a cup the night before when I got to the end, end of the, at receiving a discharge. And so I held it, I took my cup, reached over, grabbed it, held it up through the bars. He splashed coffee in it and went on down the range yelling, cups up. And so cups up, that's where it comes from. It all goes back. That was a real defining moment in my life that has stuck with me ever since. Yeah, I would think that'd be a pivot point in your life. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Well, I think a good place to start would be um, your early childhood. You grew up real not far from the studio, actually, here in Jackson. Uh, and we're actually probably between your house and the Pearl River at this point. And you were probably in the Pearl River as much as you were at your house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I grew up probably, you know, in, at the end of the Northside Drive area when it back in the 60s and 70s, there was a 
fact, it was there weren't even many houses there then when we were we were when I was growing up in the area I lived toward the end of Northside, right there in the adjacent to the jumping off uh, point to the Pearl River swamps. Yeah, you spent you, you discovered early on that you you probably liked being out on the Pearl River more than you liked being in school. Absolutely, it was a uh, school. I didn't like school. I didn't like being cooped up. I loved being outdoors. I loved fishing, just being outside. Loved hunting. And uh, just uh, school was not for me. Your your grandfather designed about half the buildings in Jackson. He designed a lot of your, the buildings in yeah. Jackson. Uh, some of them, the War Memorial Building, the you know the old the Wright and Ferguson downtown funeral home, uh, uh, the, and just, uh, quite a few more. Uh, the Wolf Oak Building and quite a few of them that are in the downtown and across Mississippi. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I saw, I thought that was interesting in your book. And of course, you had that in there. That time that you were out on the on the river, um, there was one time when you took a shotgun blast to your head. And the fact that you and I are sitting here talking to each other pretty much is nothing short of a miracle. Yeah, I was hunting. I was in the front of a boat. I was about, I think it was New Year's Eve, 1972. I was, I don't know, 14, 13. Uh, and uh, it was a much different time then. Yeah. And I was in the front of a boat, and the front buddy of mine was in the back of the boat. And I was paddling, and he accidentally discharged his shotgun and shot me in the back of the head from about, like, about from me to you. And you, you, your first your reaction was you were just stunned, right? You, I mean, that's amazing that you survived. Yeah, it. I, I didn't know what had happened. I felt this blast, something like something hit me in the head, and I'm looking. I remember seeing a hat I had flying through the air and land in the water, and I'm trying to get to my senses. I didn't know what had happened, and and it. And I remember hearing the gunshot, and then I look and I see my hat out there, and there's a red stain forming around my hat from the yeah. blood. And uh, so that's a, it was a, it was a bad day. But you retrieved the hat and kept it. I got the hat. Yeah. I got the hat. We because you're going to tell the story, you got to have the hat. Yeah, and then had to walk out about two miles. Well, that's what's so amazing that you survived just from the walk alone. Yeah, and uh, got out, had rubber boots on. When I got to the hospital, the emergency room, they pulled my boots off. Uh, of me on the table, blood just poured out of my boots, and the yeah. head wound bleeds bad. Yeah, definitely. I still got uh, pellets that penetrated the skull and went into the brain and stopped. And they're still in there. Yeah. Wow. I, th I think really to tell your story, obviously you've you know you were young, you were you pretty typical kid. Really, academics wasn't your thing, but you loved the environment, which is going to come into play later on in the story. Um. This was a time of change in Mississippi. This was when integration was going on. Suddenly your school was integrated. This was causing all kinds of angst for you and, and for a lot of folks. It kind of pushed you in a different direction, probably into a bad direction, didn't it? Yeah, integration occurred in when I was in fifth grade. I was at Casey, which is a quarter of a mile from where we're sitting right now. Right. And, uh, but, you know, it was, um, there was just a, few African-Americans that came into our school at Casey, and wasn't a lot of changes. I mean, yeah. we all got along fine. We're very young. And then in seventh grade, I trained, went into junior high at Bailey, and it was probably 85% African-American. Uh, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a total different environment, different culture for me. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the uh, uh, kids were from inner city, and I was from northeast Jackson, and it was a I, and that was a, a real in, turning point in my life where that's where I started to say my 
my racist roots at that time really started to develop. It was not, it was never from my family or my upbringing or or, or friends, that area, it wasn't, it was all, I, I can pretty well trace it back to Bailey and the experiences that went on there. You were in the Klan, and you're very open about that, and it's something that, and you're not necessarily proud of it, but you still own it. And a few years ago, I went during the oil spill, this is how this all came to be. You were, one day you got a call from a reporter that oh, said, yeah. yeah, we found out about your past. And we're gonna talk about your past and talk a little bit about how you made this, this complete turnaround in your life. But that was one of those kind of uh-oh moments, wasn't it? Yes, when I got the call from the reporter? Yeah. Oh yeah, and I'm going into a meeting during the BP oil spill with, and I'm, in a, I'm in the room with Governor Barber and his staff and many others and we're getting ready to to start, my phone, cell phone rings, and I answer it, and it's, uh, George, this is uh, Anita Lee with the Sun-Herald. We've heard about your uh, colorful past, and we're going to do a story on you. Right. It was not what I needed to hear uh, that day. Now, yeah, I own, I'm not proud of being in the Klan. It was a, a, a terrible uh, mistake that I made years and years back, but, you know, like you said, uh, Marshall, I own it. Right. And, uh I don't shy down from it. I don't brag about it. It's nothing to brag about, of course. Well, how do you go from wanting to be in the Klan to suddenly saying, no, this isn't a good idea. This is something I really should have never done. I mean, how do you, I guess, rehab from, from that? Well, you know, I rehabbed, I guess, you know. It, prison, it didn't probably, take... pro prison probably was a big part of that. Well, it ha actually, the, re the rehab from being knowing the Klan was a mistake. It dates back before I went to prison. I, it was a lot of I, was I quickly realized there was a lot of really, really ignorant people in the Klan. Yeah. And it didn't, after I got out of the Navy and got back into Jackson, where I was involved with the Klan in Jackson, it, you know, a matter of six months. I know it was a mistake. But yeah, prison, prison started another evolution. Uh, separate from that. You had, uh, your family said, hey, you know, school's probably not working for you. You need to go join the Navy. This was in the 70s. This was right after the draft had ended. Um, there was, it was kind of an interesting crew of people that they were bringing on in the military at that point. So that, you were really frustrated on the boat, weren't you, when you were on there? Because I, I remember reading in your book, you were talking about how, you know, you and a handful of other people would do a lot of the work and there were other people that were skaters. Yeah, that's what we called them, skaters, if you yeah. didn't work. It was a, you know, uh, uh, I was on a ship, the USS Concord, and we worked, we worked hard. And there was a, it was 19, I went in in October of 77, October 2nd. Yeah. And the draft had just ended a few years earlier. The military was struggling to fill its ranks. And they, in order to fill the ranks, they were taking just about, about anybody. And uh, uh, there was a, uh, they were taking, the military was taking, particularly, or at least the Navy was, taking in uh, just some folks that didn't really have any work ethic and that uh, drug use was a problem. And that's where I started, you know, kind of moving toward the Klan at that days. We tended to, me and a small group of others, were blaming some of what we saw on uh, some of the African-American sailors, even though in hindsight... yeah. That wasn't the case. It wasn't fair. At no, the time. No. no, definitely on that. You tried to start a clavern on the boat. I did start a clavern. You did start one on there. You weren't on an aircraft carrier. You were on a tiny boat. 
I mean, you got found out pretty quickly, I would imagine. We were a few months into it. Uh, someone was pulled over on base with some yeah. pa clan paraphernalia in a car, and Naval Investigative Service got involved. And, so long yeah. story short, the Navy just decided that maybe you should separate ways. Yeah, I had a very good work. Uh, uh, my reputation was, was, as, as, was as a sailor was very good, worked hard, uh, but the Klan was a... It was, we tried it, but the Navy tried to keep me in. I tried to stay in. I was transferred off the ship, and it just wasn't working out. I requested a discharge, actually, and the Navy agreed, yeah. and I got an honorable discharge and left on New Year's Eve of 79. The, the deal with that you got captured by the FBI, they captured you down there. What, tell us what happened on that, because this was an anti-government type group you were with, and you were going to go take over a Caribbean island, right? Yeah, Caribbean island, uh, yeah. Dominica. Dominica. Yeah, not the Dominican Republic, but, but Dominica. Dominica. Yeah. And this was actually an inside job. So this was like a former prime minister that was going to, but basically y'all were going to go take it over and, well, tell us exactly what, what the plan was. Well, there were 10 of us from the United States mercenaries that were that were involved with this plot that were going to go down. And most were white supremacists. Yeah. Um, and it was, and it's, it's a, it's, it's the island is, is predominantly black and it was uh, going to put a former prime minister back in charge, mm -hmm. back in charge and overthrow the, the current government. So we had Patrick John, who was the former prime minister, and we were going to overthrow Eugenia Charles, and we had the former head of the army in on the coup with us. So it was a, it was a kind of an inside job, yeah. And you never made it past the marina down in, in Slidell? Slidell, never yeah. made it past the marina. We're arrested, actually preparing to uh, board the boat to take us down. That's how you ended up in prison. And um, at one point you were talking about that you would actually help one of your cellmates write letters because they, were, they couldn't write. Did that help you a little bit understand maybe people that everybody, no matter what they looked like, was kind of living and going through the same kind of things? Yeah, at that point? yeah, it was, that was when, you know, I was, when I got to the U.S. Penitentiary in Atlanta, it was a maximum security joint. Yeah, that's a tough prison. Oh, yeah, it was a tough yeah. prison and a terrible place. But, uh, uh, you know, it was there that, you know, I had uh, seven black cellmates. I was in a cell that was designed to house six people. Right. And there were eight of us in there. I had a little thin mattress sleeping on the floor. And my second night there, one of the cellmates comes up to me, can you write me a letter? Whispers real low. Yeah. He didn't want anybody, he didn't want to show any weakness. Right. And uh, it was not a prison, it's not a place to show weakness. You know, they'll prey on you. So I sat up and he couldn't read or write. And uh, so I started writing letters home to his mother mm -hmm. initially and then to his sister and then and then one or two others would come to me and I wrote letters home for them. None of them and myself could read or write. And uh, But what I saw, they were telling me some really intimate details and sharing very personal their per feelings with me and I started realizing their letters are no different than my letters home. Right. They could have been my letters and, you know, and I really worked hard to get them right. I couldn't, sometimes I had to... The, I would listen to the emotion in their voice yeah. and really work hard to, 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 to get their emotion over what they were trying to say. And I might sometimes totally rewrite what 
they said. It might not be what, what they said, but I felt like I was, it really meant a lot to me to get that right to them. How long were you, how long were you in exactly in prison? Year and a half. Year and a half. Okay. Were there any times when you were just laying there at night going, okay, what have I done with my life and what do I need to do differently? I would think so. Yeah, it started in Tallahassee, Florida at the first prison I was in. Yeah. I was in solitary. I was there about a week or so. And then in Atlanta Penitentiary, uh, ended up in solitary there in the hole. We, they called it uh, the doghouse. Yeah, how do you end up in solitary? Just because of something you've done? Yeah, I was in transit. Okay. I wasn't, you don't go to general population if you're in transit. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, I was there for about two months, and then a, a month and a half of that was in solitary. I was in a, in a one-man cell. Yeah. And you got an awful lot of time to just lay. There's nothing to read, almost nothing to read. And you lay there, and I had a lot of self-examination of myself. Right. You know, what did I do wrong? And I knew what I had done wrong. I went much deeper than what I'd done wrong. It got me here was conspiracy to invade a foreign country. Right. What I had to do to figure out was... What led me to that? What were the things right. in my life, my my lifestyles, my beliefs, my morals, my values had to change? Otherwise, I'm going to just end up in another bad right. situation. So that's where prison started an evolution within me that where I made a commitment and a promise to myself going all the way back to that first day, that cups up moment uh, going forward that I was going to somehow some, I, I was going to come out of this and turn my life around and do better. The day the jail door opened up, did you have a plan? Say, this is what I'm going to do? I did not have a specific plan. I'll say this. I had a strategic plan, but not a tactical plan. Gotcha. My strategic plan was I'm going to get out of here. Um, I'm going to I'm going to change some of the, and I had figured out by then where I, I mean, I couldn't hang out with, with, with Klansmen that were, right. had criminal tendencies uh, for the rest of my life. There was a lot of things I had to do wrong that I had to, that I had to change that, I, that were wrong. And so I left there, you know, I remember when I walked out of Englewood, uh, Colorado, the prison I was in, when I walked out that front door, I'm, I sat there and muttered aloud, cups up, cups up. Uh, it was that I went back to that moment, and I didn't know how it was going, where it was going to lead, but I knew I made a commitment and a promise, and I and I've and I've held through to that. What was your plan? What was your uh, say? Okay, I'm going to now because we had mentioned earlier you'd spent a lot of time on the Pearl River. You spent, I mean, not here in Jackson and Downriver as well. Did you come out and say, okay, I want to do something with the environment, or what? What was your what was your first plan? First, uh, you know, I actually thought about law school. I saw. Just the, the criminal justice system and the prison system in the United States just really needs even to, to this. I'm going back to the to 1980-ish and uh, major overhaul. In fact, it hasn't yeah. changed much since then. My, so I originally wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to do something to try and change the system, what yeah. I had seen. And But that, that changed. I was a convicted felon. I'm a ex-con. I'm an ex Klansman, I'm an ex this, I'm an ex that. I had a lot of things going against me and uh, to try and get in law school or get the bar to even accept me. So I changed along those lines and I liked being outdoors. And so I moved, I got out and I, I started working hard to try and pay my way through college and uh, started at Hines, ended up at uh, Hines Junior College out at Raymond, ended up at Southern in Hattiesburg and got into environmental studies. I wanted to be outside. And I had a real soft spot in my heart for for the environment. I wanted to do something to to protect the environment. Yeah, because you'd seen a major fish kill 
on the Pearl River when you were a kid, didn't you? Yeah, back 1970-ish, yeah. somewhere in there, a big sulfuric acid release had occurred at a plant in South Jackson and uh, had killed, just literally killed all the fish for many miles downstream. And I'm at my grandfather's farm on the banks of the Pearl River. We had run trot lines and and uh, uh, fished in the river and swam in the river. And then I'm there, you know, I'm, you know, 11, 12 years old with my father, and it's just just thousands of dead fish floating by. Yeah. And he explained to me it was from the lack of environmental controls. My father was an engineer, and he didn't like what he was seeing. And that was, you know, actually a couple of years before a federal EPA was ever even formed. So, you know, I, that's been a, a real moment for me that, you know, that we need environmental controls, and that's what pushed me into those studies yeah. at, uh, in college. When, when you graduated, you went for MDEQ, right, the Department of Environmental Quality. Yeah, yeah, you know, while I was in college, I got my uh, felony conviction expunged, not expunged, set aside. I was sentenced under the provisions of the Federal Youth Corrections mm -hmm. Act, which allowed for a set aside. So that had happened in 1987. And then in uh, 89, uh, I end up at uh, getting a job as an environmental technician at, at the Department of Environmental Quality. And uh, I, it, I, it, my my whole purpose wanting to go there was remembering back to that that fish, fish kill down on, on the Pearl River back in 1970. Talk about some of the experiences. So, what were some of the things that you saw when you were doing that at at DEQ? Yeah. Oh gosh, I, I I worked in the emergency services branch. After about a year, I transferred in. So I worked chemical spills, oil spills, and uh, buried hazardous waste and illegally disposed of hazardous waste. Back in the 90s or early 90s, and it, for a period of time, there was a there was a lot of environmental outlaws. All price oil was twelve, thirteen, fourteen dollars a barrel, and so the major oil companies had pulled were had pulled out of Mississippi, and you had a some small operators, and 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 quite a few of which were really bad operators. There's a lot of oil spills; they weren't cleaning them up, and we would we had some real battles. We fought with. Uh, some of the exploration companies, and it was just a few. The most, even then, with the price of oil that by and large they were good. Most were good companies, but you had some bad operators, and then you had some uh, some outlaws who would dump hazardous waste, uh, different chemicals that were waste that we, they would take and dump them or bury them. And I, I did. I, I worked many investigations looking for buried hazardous waste or trying to figure out who had dumped hazardous waste. You went into end up going into private industry. You you, you figured out hey, this is probably going to be better for me to do, and you you started you started your own company if I if I remember correctly. But that basically everything that you had seen had set you up for that day when all suddenly the Deep Horizon well had blown up in the yeah. Gulf of Mexico. I mean, I, I, DQ. I was there ten years, and when I left, I was making twenty eight thousand a year after that. And I had kids. Yeah. I wanted to support my family, and uh, so. Uh, went on into the private sector, cleaning up spills, yeah. environmental contracting. And then, uh, yeah, Deepwater Horizon, the BP oil spill uh, occurs in April of uh, 2010. Yeah, and then, of course, Governor Barber called you up because, obviously, of your, of your past resume. Talk about that job because, I mean, obviously, Mississippi Gulf Coast didn't catch it as hard as some of the other areas, but it still was a, a pretty big task to, to handle, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, we have the barrier islands that protected Mississippi. 
uh, that the other states did not have. You know, you could start going from east to west. You got Petty Boy, then Horn, yeah. and then then Ship, and then Cat Islands, and they caught by far the brunt of the oil. And they were they were a mess. There yeah. was a lot of oil, and some comes got through the cuts between the islands and came in, and we were able to clean it up on the beaches. With we had several thousand workers working, but uh, then the you know the the oil was the the well was capped on July fifteenth of twenty ten, and you hardly saw any surface oil come in. The beach Mississippi beaches were cleaned by uh, shortly that time or very after shortly thereafter. But the Barrier Island cleanup went on into twenty twelve, trying to get oh, them wow. clean. They yeah. had caught a lot caught a lot of oil. Looking back on your life now, as we wrap up a little bit. Um, is there anything that you would do, have done differently, or is this just all part of the evolution to get what you where you are today? Oh, of course, there's things I've done differently, but it's it's just not that simple. But I will say this: I've made some bad mistakes. I've done some uh, and some some things that that I'm ashamed of, or or certainly not proud of. But I've learned from them. I came out of prison a stronger and better person than I went in, and that's a rarity. Yeah. Where most people come out worse people. But I've evolved over the years. Uh, yeah, from being a, a Klansman in 1979 uh, or, or so to where I am now, I can't even look back and fathom how I had made those decisions. But I've, I've made mistakes, but I've learned from them. And I've made some major corrections in my life based on some of it. So it's all part of me now. I say in there, I look at it, it's like a quilt. You know, you got some little quilt, and I mentioned in the book, there's some ugly patches on the thing and all that. But overall, uh, it's a pretty good picture, I think. I think so. But I think one thing that uh, that impresses me about the story and about the book is the fact that you that you stand up and you admit it and you, and you own it, which so many people wouldn't have done that. Well, I take it right on the chin every day. And uh, that's, that's how I made my corrections. I I self-evaluated, and I accepted where I had made mistakes, and and I learned from that and moved on. And you got to make some sometimes some painful. You got to face your past. Everybody's got to, and if you don't do it, uh, it's hard to better your life. And I think I've done a. I've worked very hard. I'm still work walking that path. I'm still not the person I want to be. But I try to try and become that person every day when I get up. Well, thank you for sharing your life with us today. It's been good to visit with you. All right, Marshall. Thank you. All right. I'm Marshall Ramsey. Thanks for listening today. Subscribe to this podcast to be updated on new episodes. Conversations is produced by Mississippi Public Broadcasting.